bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. And the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. We're not there yet, brothers and sisters. We will be there. But that picture of what is yet to come began when Jesus Christ got up from the grave. Point number two. In the resurrection of Jesus, the righteous king takes his place on the throne. Do you remember when Jesus was hanging on the cross and when they were beating him and you know, the centurions, the people who were passing by, the religious leaders, they were all looking at Jesus and going, Hey, Jesus, what's up, buddy? I thought you were the king. Didn't you say you were the king of the Jews? Even Pilate kind of asked them, Hey, are you the king of the Jews? It's just, he doesn't look very much like a king as he's hanging there on a cross after having been beaten and spit upon, and now he's being mocked by all the people that are supposedly of his kingdom. But Paul describes the reality of Jesus as he is vindicated by God and placed on his rightful throne in the resurrection. Listen to what he says. God has seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet, including every single person that mocked him, that's mocking him now, and that will ever mock him in the future. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. The king is on his throne. Point number three. Because of the resurrection, we are seated at the right hand of the Father in the heavenly places. I one time heard a theologian say something like, I think the most underappreciated doctrine in our Bibles is the union with Christ. The doctrine of our union with Christ. And at the time, I was like, nah, bro, I think it's God's sovereignty, right? But the more I read the Bible, and the more I see all the language of the New Testament, and when it talks about our spiritual blessings, it all has to do with our union with Christ. If you go through and you read Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 2, where Paul talks about all of our spiritual blessings in the heavenly places, look at all the times where it says, in Him, in Him, in Christ, through Him. And then just do that throughout the rest of your New Testaments. In Christ, through Christ. Because we are with Christ. What is true of Christ is also true of us when we are united with Christ. And so if Christ is seated on the throne, then we are also seated on the throne. Ephesians 2 says it like this, Even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. I know it doesn't feel like you're a king sitting on a throne right now. But one day this reality will break forth into your conscious experience in a way that honestly we can't even begin to comprehend right now. And it all happened because Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus shared in our likeness, He shared in our nature, He shared in our sorrows, our sufferings, and now through Jesus, we get to share in His rule and reign. And there is no safer place to be in the world than at the right hand of the Father in Jesus Christ. Point number four, because of the resurrection, we will never die. 
we will never die. Romans 6, 8 and 9. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Christ. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. And if we are in Christ, brothers and sisters, we will never die again. Later in verse 23, Paul says this, The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. Do you fear death? Maybe on your best days, no. On your worst days, yes. But as Christians, we have the sweetest hope in the world, brothers and sisters, that even when our blood stops pumping and our heart stops beating and our oxygen evaporates out of our bodies, we will live again. Point number four. No, excuse me. Point number five. Because of the resurrection, we have the power to kill sin. I know what it's like to feel helpless against sin. I know what it's like to feel the burning sensation of sin in your heart and in your body. And I know what it's like to feel like you don't have the power to stop it, to put it to death. I know what it's like to burn and to feel dominated with passions and desires that are not from God. And I know what it's like to feel helpless. And I've sat and talked with you, members of the church, and I've looked into your eyes, and I've seen that same expression of helplessness. I don't know what to do. (coughs) But God's Word tells us that if the same power of God that raised Jesus Christ from the dead lives in us by His Holy Spirit, we actually have the power to put sin to death. Romans 6.10 says it like this, For the death that He died, He died to sin, once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. In addition to that, he says that because of the resurrection, we have the power to live transformed lives. Romans 6, 4 says it like this. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Point number six, through the resurrection, we are able to fully grasp the power of God. Uh, J.D. Thorne used a good illustration yesterday in the Bible boot camp. You know, he talked about trying to describe the color blue to a blind person, right? You know, blue like the sky. Uh, I've never seen the sky. Okay, blue like uh, Cookie Monster. Never seen the Cookie Monster. Blue like the opposite of green. Well, I don't know if that's the opposite, but no, never seen green, so can't compare, right? In the same way, trying to describe people like us who are held captive to the power of sin prior to salvation, for us to understand the power of God, even after we've been saved by it, it's difficult. It's hard. And so Paul in Ephesians 1, when he's praying for 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 the church in Ephesus, he says, listen, I want you guys to understand some things. I'm praying that the Spirit of God will come into your heart and open your eyes so that you can see and understand some things about yourselves and about God. And he he prays for three things. But the third thing that he prays for is that they would understand the power of God in their lives. And this is how he gets them to understand it. He says it like this. It is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. So how powerful is God? Well, he's powerful enough to raise a dead man to life. We've already talked about how incredible that is. 
Point number seven. Because of the resurrection, our justification can be accomplished. Justification means we're declared innocent. We are not innocent. We are guilty. And God should render a verdict on our souls that says guilty. But in justification, God looks at us and he says, you're justified, you're innocent. And Romans 4.25 says that that is accomplished for us by the resurrection. He was delivered up for our trespasses, but he was raised up, resurrected for our justification. One author says it like this, when God the Father raised Christ from the dead, it was a demonstration that he accepted Christ's sufferings and his death as full payment for sins. It demonstrated his favor towards the Son. And since we as Christians are everywhere in the New Testament referred to as those who are in Christ, then the Son's favor with God is our favor with God. The Son's innocence is our innocence. The penalty has been paid, and we have been declared innocent. Point number eight. Because of the resurrection... We can have hope in this world. 1 Peter 1.3 reads like this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. A living hope. It's, it's hope that's alive right here, right now, in our hearts. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Well, how does the resurrection give us hope? It gives us hope in a thousand different ways. It gives us hope because it shows us that the God that we serve, the God that we worship, is faithful to His promises. It gives us hope because it shows us that God vindicates the righteous. It gives us hope because it shows us that we can live again after we die. It gives us hope because we see that Satan has been defeated. It gives us hope because we see that the curtain has been torn and that we have access to God. It gives us hope because it shows us the power of God, and we need it because we're weak. And the list could go on and on and on. All of these things give us hope as we live life in this fallen world. And brothers and sisters, we need hope. Barack Obama ran on that word, that one single word in his campaign for a reason, because it's powerful, because so many of us are living lives of hopelessness. Where's the hope? Well, because of the resurrection, we as Christians have unique access to a living hope. Verse number 9. The resurrection gives us the promise of glorified bodies. In Christian theology, we don't believe that Jesus Christ is the only one who's raised from the dead. We believe that He was the firstborn raised from the dead. And we believe that everyone who dies in Him will one day be resurrected with Him. 1 Corinthians 15, 52-53 says it like this. The dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. This is from the whole chapter of 1 Corinthians 15 that we read earlier. And when my wife Amber was reading it and she began to tear up, I, I tried not to tear up with her, and now I'm trying not to tear up with her, but life is so hard in our bodies, in this broken body, damaged by sin. How can you not tear up 
when you think about the fact that one day we won't have to live in these broken down houses anymore. We live in a nice house over on Woodland Drive, Woodland Road, Woodland Street, something. It's a nice house. I'm really thankful for it. I'm very thankful for it. So many people want to go move into the hood. I grew up in the hood. I'm happy to live on Woodland Street where my kids can ride their bikes up and down the road. But I remember living in a hut in the jungle. Snakes crawled up through cracks in the floor. There was no AC, no heat. There was no electricity to speak of. Rats used to crawl all along the rafters of our roofs. Wood would break when you would just walk across it. I mean, it was, it was just a terrible place to live. But now, I feel like I live in a house that will never decay. It just, and that's not true. It certainly will, but it's just the difference. is just mind-boggling. And that is nothing. It can't even come close to capturing the difference between this fallen, broken body that is decaying and slowly leading us on a trail to death and the body that we're going to get one day when we get resurrected and we go to heaven to be with King Jesus. There's not going to be any more broken bones. No more emergency room trips. There's not going to be any more cancer, autoimmune diseases, no more creaky joints, no more surgeries, no more tweaks. Our sister Catherine won't have to live with tubes hanging out of her veins all the time. Her children won't have to wonder if tonight will be the night or today will be the day. There won't be any more long visits to the hospital or experimental medications or treatments. There won't be any arguing with doctors anymore. I won't hurt my neck working out. You know, just from the little things to the major things, none of it is going to happen anymore. Our new hearts will never stop beating. Our new cells will never turn on us and form tumors. Our bodies will be incorruptible. Point number 10. The resurrection of Jesus Christ gives us sweet victory. Speaking of the reality of the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, 57, Paul says, But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, victory over what? Victory over the flesh, which is constantly hounding us and trying to kill us. Victory over Satan, who is constantly attacking us. Victory over the world, which is constantly trying to consume us. Victory over hell, which desires of every second of every day to swallow us whole. Victory over sin, which feels like it is just constantly beating down our doors. And victory, ultimately, over death's hold on our souls. O oh, death, where is thy sting? Point number 11. Because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we will have un... It's one of these things that's so good, you almost don't want to believe that it's true. But it is true. We will have an irrevocable joy. Our joy is so fleeting right now. We're happy right now and depressed the next minute. We're delighted and then we are despairing. We are full of joy and then we are broken and distraught. Our our, our sails are full of wind and we feel like we could go to the ends of the earth on the emotional high that we're riding. 
And then we feel like we're broken down without gas on the side of the road. When Jesus is talking to his disciples about his death, he brings up his resurrection in John 16, and he prepares them. He says, you'll be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. And then a few verses later, he gives what is perhaps the greatest news that anyone could ever hear from Jesus. He says, I will see you again. And your hearts will rejoice. And no one will take your joy. We feel like our joy is being taken from us all the time, do we not? Our bosses are stealing our joy. This world, the traffic, our bills, our bodies... Everything is stealing our joy. We steal our own joy. Satan wants to steal our joy. Sometimes the people we love the most in the world, our wives and our husbands and our children, they steal our joy. But Jesus says that when he is resurrected and we are resurrected with him, that nothing will steal our joy. We will be in the presence of God in the face of Jesus Christ forever and ever and ever and ever. And this glory will never fade away because it is the unfading glory of God himself. No president or king or council will steal our joy. No sickness or ailment or malady will steal our joy. No thief will break into our house and steal our joy. No con man will take our joy from us. No sin will ensnare us. No devil will rob us. The joy of Jesus Christ will be with us forever. No depression, no anxiety will exist in our lives. There will be nothing but joy and joy everlasting. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is like a radioactive event where the largest, most pure supply of the greatest radioactive material in the universe is ignited. And it's a detonation, an explosion of joy where the shock waves go out and spill the banks of the universe. And every single person and every single thing that is caught in this destruction, this wave of joy, will be enjoying that joy forever. This is the reason why Jesus went to the cross. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. But you should know that if you're not a Christian, if you have not repented of your sins, truly repented, and if you have not trusted in Christ, this joy will not be yours. There will be the opposite of joy. There will be tears, but it will not be tears of joy. It will be weeping. It will be gnashing of teeth. Jesus Christ is a good and merciful Savior. And he has flung open the doors to the world's largest supply of joy the universe's largest supply of joy. 
and he offers it freely to us. So choose joy. You may think that what you're choosing now is enjoyable and that you'll deal with eternity when you get there. But friends, I promise you that will be a bad decision. Point number 12. There is no gospel without the resurrection of Jesus Christ. As Amber read earlier, Paul says this. I want to remind you about this gospel that I preach to you, this gospel that saves you, the only thing that can save you. He says, I delivered to you as of first importance that Jesus Christ died for our sins. And then he says that Jesus Christ was buried. And then he says that Jesus Christ was raised on the third day. When he says that something is of first importance, what he means is that it's foundational. He means that there's nothing more important. He means that if you don't get this right, nothing else matters. If this is wrong, everything else is wrong. If the resurrection of Jesus Christ did not happen, there is no gospel. I know a man in this very city. I've conversed with him many times. He's told me that he's a Christian. He's also told me that he doesn't believe that Jesus rose from the grave. Well, those things are not compatible. Listen to Paul as this chapter goes on. I know I've read a lot of scripture this morning. And I've cried a lot, so because of those two things, you guys are probably waning in and out. But really try to focus and listen to what Paul says here. He's dealing with this idea, this theme, that the resurrection didn't happen. And he tells us what the consequences are of that. Listen. But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. I'm going to do something sneaky here. I'm going to put some subpoints in my sermon. In light of what I see Paul saying here about the resurrection, I think we can say seven things that are true if Jesus Christ is not raised from the grave. Seven things. Number one, if Jesus Christ is still in the grave then our preaching is in vain. My preaching is in vain. Russell's apologetics class, which he's done so well in putting together, even handouts, setting a bad precedent because you're never going to get them from me. All of that that he's doing in there, it's all worthless. When Grant shares the gospel, tries to find his coworker, it tries to help his coworker find a good church, it's worthless. When you go to a halfway house or the jail and you do a Bible study, it doesn't matter. Every time I step into this pulpit, I'm just wasting an hour of my life. You are sitting here wasting an hour of your life listening to me if the resurrection did not happen. Every missionary is wasting his time, talent, and treasure in the mission field. Every evangelist is just wasting their life away. Every Bible study, every Sunday school, everything, it's all worthless. 
If the resurrection didn't happen, number two, our faith is in vain. Paul says it twice. He says, your faith is in vain, and then he says it again another way, your faith is futile. You see, Paul understands that faith in and of itself doesn't save anybody. Faith isn't a word that is imparted with super spiritual meaning. Faith just means you trust in something. And if you trust in something that's not true, your faith is worthless. If I go jump off this building and trust that I'll land on my feet and I'll be perfectly okay, my faith is worthless because I trusted in something that wasn't true. And Paul says that as believers in Jesus Christ, our faith is that Jesus Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, and that he was raised by God. So if Jesus Christ is not raised, then our faith is in vain, and we are not saved. Because Paul says that we are saved by faith. Number three. If the resurrection didn't happen, we are lying about who God is. This is perhaps the most serious charge. And when I have conversations with my friends who are Muslims or Jehovah's Witness or anything along those lines, this is usually where I begin with them. Well, have you considered the fact that if, if what you say is true, you're lying about God? Well, Paul is intellectually honest enough to recognize that. He says, listen, if I'm wrong about this, if I'm wrong about the resurrection, <clears throat> I'm a liar. I'm lying. About, I'm going around lying about who God is. I'm saying God is like this, but he's not like that. He's like this. The God that we preach is a God who raised his son from the grave. It's a God of eternally existing three persons, one essence. It is the God of the second person of the Trinity, the son who came down and took on human flesh, lived a perfect life, died, and was resurrected by the spirit of God to be placed at the right hand of God for all of eternity. Number four, if the resurrection didn't happen, we are still in our sins. That's what Paul says here. We've talked already about how meaningful the resurrection is to our justification, and Paul just makes that point. He says, listen, you're sinners. You're, you're, God, a holy God, is going to judge you, but the way that God has made for you to be saved from that judgment is trusting in His perfect Son, who was resurrected to save you. And so if that resurrection didn't happen, then you're still in your sins, and you still face the wrath of God. Number five, if the resurrection didn't happen, everyone that we thought that we knew as a Christian that died and went to heaven to go be with the Father, they're just dead. That's what he says here. He says they're still in their graves. They haven't, they haven't gone to go be in the bosom of the Lord and to enjoy the glory of his presence. They're just dead. Number six, if the resurrection didn't happen, we can only hope for this world. And that is no hope at all. Number seven. If the resurrection didn't happen, we are people who should be pitied. Why? Because the resurrection has changed the way we live our lives. Look at you this morning on a Sunday morning. Young, cool, hip people. You could be out drinking mimosas. You could be on the river. What are you doing here on a Sunday morning? That money that you give to the church, that money that you give to those poor people who need your help, to those missionaries, what are you doing? Why are you giving that to them? The time, talent, and treasure that you invest in these eternal things, 
the conversations that you have to have, the relationships that you build, all of it, it's just all worthless. We are living lives of suffering for no reason. Now, for many Christians, this verse doesn't make sense, or people who think that they're Christians, because they think that to be a Christian means you only and always experience blessings. But as people who believe that to follow Jesus Christ is to follow in the path of suffering, then we are living lives of delusion. We are suffering for no reason. We are in Sunday morning service for no reason. We are giving up our time, talent, and treasures for no reason if Jesus is still in the grave. And people should look at us and pity us. This old line that, you know, eh, well, you know, even if it's not true, we still lived a good life. We still lived a good Christian life, and that's a reward in and of itself. No, it is not. My reward is not living a good Christian life. My reward is the resurrection on the last day when I get to go be with the Father. So yes, if it's not true, the world should look at me and pity me. And it does. But praise God that Jesus is alive. I'm not standing up here wasting my breath. Sunday schools and Bible studies are not a waste of your time. Our faith is not in vain. We are not lying about who God is. We're not misrepresenting Him. We are not still in our sins. Our brothers and sisters and aunts and uncles and grandmas and grandpas and friends and co-workers who died in Christ, they are not still in the grave. They are with Him. We don't have to hope in this world alone. And although the world pities us, they have no good reason to. Because Jesus is alive. Which leads us to our final point, number 13. The resurrection sets the agenda for the rest of our lives. If this is true, we cannot live the same. Our marriages will look different. The way we parent our children will look different. The way we have relationships with friends and coworkers will look different. Our words will be different. The way we spend our money will be different. Everything about our lives will be radically changed. But when I say radical, you might hear me say like, oh, I need to go sell my house and go to the mission field. And maybe you do. But the thing that's so radical about the change that the resurrection brings about is actually how mundane it really is. The radical is in the mundane. It changes not the biggest details of your life alone, but every single tiny detail of your life. All 10,000 of them. One of the most obvious ways that it changes your life is it establishes your weekly calendar. Christians for 2,000 years have on a Sunday come together to worship the God that resurrected from the grave. This is what we do. You know, when I was a young and immature Christian, and maybe I'm, I'm still on that process, right, of trying to come out of that, and I will be until I get to heaven, but I thought, well, I can, I can, I can do this anywhere. I can celebrate the, the risen Lord anywhere. But friends, that's not the way that God has commanded us to, re to celebrate the resur resurrected Lord. He tells us to come together. He tells us to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to one another. He tells us to 
pray with one another, to encourage one another, exhort one another, challenge one another, gather with one another. And for 2,000 years, Christians have been understanding those commands and they have been doing it. They've been coming together on a Sunday. A mark of a maturing Christian is how seriously they take Sundays. I don't mean to say that they, you know, they show up button topped, but, you know, buttons buttoned all the way to the top. You know, no time for jokes, no time for games. I'm here for Sunday. I mean that no matter where they are or what they're doing, they're going to find a way to gather with God's people and worship. I mean that even if they've had a hard week, they get up and they come and they gather with God's people and worship. I mean, even if they don't feel like it, <coughs> even if every cell in their body is crying out, ah, I just don't want to go deal with people today. They say, you know what? Jesus got up from the grave. I'm going to go worship. I'm going to go celebrate. The resurrection sets the agenda for our lives. You know, uh, I used to go to church about once every other week as a young Christian. You know, especially when I, had, when I was in the army and I hated every second of my life. I would go about every other week. I was just exhausted. And I used to ask myself, man, like I see it in the scriptures, right? Like if you go through the book of Acts and other places in, in the New Testament, you can see that Great, Christians get together and they worship on Sunday. And I used to say, man, does it have to be once a week? But by God's grace, since I've been walking with him at the age of 18, I've come to say, man, only once a week? I only get to be with my brothers and sisters once a week? I only get to sing praises to his name once a week? I only get to hear my brothers and sisters encourage me with prayer once a week? I only get to have my soul fed by a gospel-rich, biblically-saturated sermon once a week? Man, let's do church on Tuesday and Thursday. You know what? When I got to the jungle, I saw all the believers there because they weren't distracted by television and movies and the Internet and all the things that are going on in this fast-paced world. You know what they did? They had church on Tuesday. They had church on Saturday. They had a prayer meeting on Friday night. And then they had church twice on Sunday. They're living the dream. It's my heart's desire that when we think about the resurrection, when we think about Sunday morning and coming together to celebrate the resurrection, that we don't think about what we have to do, we think about what we get to do. And that our, our lesser desires would be overpowered by our, our greatest desires in light of this resurrection reality. Because you know what, brothers and sisters? Every single Sunday is a foretaste of what awaits us on that day. It's not as good as the real thing, but it's the best that we have for here and now. And it points to that day when we won't have to celebrate what was, look forward to what will be, but we will get to live in the present power of the resurrection. Let's pray. Father, I pray that